Cool. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll get into our study today. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. <clears throat> thank you that it never turns back void. Um, Lord, as we start Romans, uh, just thank you so much, God, for the opportunity to um, start another book and um, pray for those who couldn't make it today, that you would just uh, bless them, Lord, if they're watching online, if they watch this later or on podcast, listen to it, that you would just uh, you just use your word, Lord, to impact people's lives. Thank you that it accomplishes what it's set for. Just prepare our hearts and minds, Lord. And uh, you just remove me from the equation in Jesus' name. Amen. So whenever we um, <clears throat> start a book, I try and do an overview or an, introdu an introduction to it. And so today we're going to read through a little bit of um, introduction to the book of Romans. If I could get my glasses out of this pocket. And then uh, we will get into Romans chapter 1. Verse 1 through 17 is where we're going to be at in our text today. <clears throat> so introduction to the book of Romans. Um, it's place in the canon. Historically, Romans is the most influential of Bible books, believe it or not. Um, Augustine was converted through reading Romans. Um, and the, the, the Protestant Reformation was launched when Martin Luther finally understood the meaning of God's righteousness um, that the just shall live by faith. That was in 1517. Um, uh, Augustine was converted in AD 380. Um, John Wesley received assurance of salvation through hearing the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans, um, read in Moravian House Church on Aldersgate Street in London of 1738. John Calvin wrote that when anyone understands this epistle, an epistle means letter, so when anyone understands this letter, um, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole Scripture. The author, undisputedly, is Paul. He's the author of Romans. The Holy Spirit used Paul to write this book. Uh, the date uh, Romans was written after 1st and 2nd Corinthians because the collection being formed when those letters were written is now is now ready and about to be taken to the poor saints at Jerusalem. References to Centuria, the port city of Corinth in verse 16.1, um, and other details make most scholars opt for Corinth as the city of origin. In other words, it was written while Paul was in Corinth. Since Paul was there only three months at the close of, this th of his third missionary journey, before he was chased away due to plots against him, it must be during this short period that the epistle was penned. This makes the date about A.D. 56. Uh, the background and themes. How did Christianity first reach Rome? Uh, we cannot be positive about that, but it may be that Jews from Rome who were converted in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and if you want to read about that, you can go to Acts chapter 2, verse 10, carried back the good news, and that would have been around A.D. 30. Paul had never been in Rome when he wrote this letter for the, from Corinth about 26 years later, which is when he wrote it, after AD 30, but he knew quite a few of the Christians there, as is seen in chapter 16. Christians in those days were people on the move, whether as a result of persecution or as heralds of the gospel or in the ordinary course of their work. 
these Christians in Rome were from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. So we see that it's, it's he, you know, the, the, the believers in Rome were, were Jewish and um, non-Jewish believers. Um, Paul finally did reach Rome around a, A.D. 60, uh, but not in the way he expected. He came as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. So at the end of Paul's missionary, he actually is incarcerated and taken to Rome um, in chains, um, basically. And so uh, you can read all through the book of Acts. Uh, the, the account of um, Paul's journey starts in Acts chapter 9, if you're interested in that. Um, Romans is a classic. To the unsaved, it offers a clear exposition of their sinful, lost condition and God's righteous plan for saving them. New believers learn of their identification with Christ and of victory through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mature believers, in other words, those who've been walking with the Lord for quite some time, find never-ending delights in its wide spectrum of Christian truth, doctrinal, prophetical, and practical. An excellent way to understand the epistle to the Romans is as a dialogue between Paul and some unnamed objectors. So Paul writes in a way of like people objecting to the gospel. As Paul sets forth the gospel, he seems to hear this objection raising all kinds of arguments against it. The apostle replies to his opponent's questions one by one. By the time he is finished, Paul has answered every major attitude that can take a re- that can that man can take regarding the gospel of the grace of God. I, I copied this, by the way. I didn't write any of this. This is out of one of the commentaries I use, and I just really want to give a full background of what the book is about before we get into it. So sorry if it's a little uh, long and drawn out. <clears throat> um, uh, let's see. Okay. Sometimes uh, the objections are clearly stated. Sometimes they are only implied. But whether stated or implied, they all revolve around the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from the works of the law. In other words, the law cannot save us, and it is only by grace that we are saved. And so Romans, is surround, Romans surrounds the theme of the gospel. Um, we think of Romans as dealing with 11 main questions. What is the subject of the letter? What is the gospel? Why do men need the gospel? According to the gospel, how can ungodly sinners be justified by a holy God? That's in, there's scripture references. I should have put this on there, so I apologize um, for not doing that. I, I, I want to, maybe I should give this list to you guys. Um, number five, does the gospel agree with the Old Testament scriptures? That would be Romans 4, 1 through 25. What are the benefits of justification in the believer's life? In other words, how does it benefit us, this justification in our life? That would be Romans 5, 1 through 21. Does the teaching of salvation by grace through faith permit, even, permit or even encourage sinful living? Romans 6, 1 through 23. What is the relationship of the Christian to the Old Testament law? Romans 7, 1 through 25. How is the Christian enabled to live a holy life? Romans 8, 1 through 39. Uh, does the gospel, by promising salvation to both Jews and Gentiles, mean that God has broken His promise to His earthly people, the Jews? In other words, when, the, when, when salvation was given to the Gentiles, did that, you know, uh, cause the Jewish people to be broken off by the promises that God had made to them prior 
to, to that happening. And that would have been uh, Romans 9, 1 through 11, chapter 11, verse 36. Number 11, how should those who have been justified by grace respond in their everyday lives? That's Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through Romans chapter 16, verse 27. So an acquaintance with these 11 questions and their answers will give a working knowledge of this important epistle or letter. Romans is a very powerful book. Um, so, I, well, of course, the whole Bible is. Um, the answer to the first question, what is the subject of Romans? The answer is, of course, the gospel. That's the whole subject of the book. Paul wastes no time in getting to the point for time Four times in the first 16 verses, he mentions it. This gives rise to the question, this gives rise to the second question, what is the gospel? The word itself means good news. But in verses 1 through 17, the apostle tells us six important facts about the good news. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Paul is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. We see that here in verse 1. It's important to understand um, Paul's dedication to the Lord. Um, Bondservant means slave. Paul is stating that he is a slave to Jesus Christ, one that is purchased. A slave would have been bought would have been purchased, would have been the property of his master. And so when Paul states this about himself, he's saying that everything about his life is the property of Jesus. After Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, Jesus Christ met Paul while he was on the road to Damascus. If you want to take time to go and read Acts chapter 9, it's a pretty radical testimony of what the Lord did. And this is Jesus, and Jesus coming down met Paul in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a flash of light, and the men that were around him heard but could not see. Uh, so there were witnesses to it, but they just couldn't see what had happened. And Paul was blinded at that time. There's a whole, it's an awesome testimony. Go read it. Um, and so that's when Paul, that's when Jesus met Paul, and Paul was on the road to, to, to had a decree to go murder Christians. It's amazing that Jesus can meet us in the middle of our destructive life. <clears throat> Paul was commissioned by Jesus, who gave Paul the authority to carry this mission out. We see that in verse 1 also. Paul was set apart for the purpose of the gospel. His life was for that only. Uh, You and I have been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You and I sitting here, Jesus purchased us already. It's us who, whether we decide to accept that or not, is the issue. He already purchased everyone. That's why we have John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God and the work of the cross, its accomplishment is not, um, uh, 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 we don't dictate God's accomplishment in that way. He already did it. And so, uh, we have already been purchased by the blood of Jesus. We are called to be witnesses of His saving power, just like Paul was. And we are set apart to share with others the good news everywhere we go, whether it's in our home or our neighbors or here at church or, or whatnot. That's why we go and do outreaches. That's why, you know, all of, us are, all of us are qualified and called by God to gather together and to go out into the community and to share the love of Jesus. So like for this, this skate ministry, man, come out. 
Um, I know a handful of you have gone out and done outreaches with us before, and I've watched the Lord use all of you to just strike up conversations with people. And out of those types of conversations, as you walk with the Lord and are sensitive to Him, He can do great things through each and every one of us. It just takes a step of faith and a trust in Him, knowing that He's in control of that. And we'll learn here, too, at the end of this, that there's power in the gospel, that it's not in us that, that does those things. God just calls us to take a step of faith and share the truth of Jesus with those around us. And so we see that Paul was totally dedicated to this. And, and God calls us to be dedicated to that as well in the world around us, and our flesh doesn't want to be dedicated to that. It's contrary to it, actually. So, where did the gospel and the good news come from? So, what, where's its origin? And we see here, um, uh, separated to the gospel, the last three, the last one, two, three, four, five words there, to the gospel of God. God is the source of the gospel. He created it. He is the source of it. We see here in verse 2, reading, which he promised, Paul's continuing to write, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So we see here that the gospel was promised by God himself, spoken through the prophets in the Old Testament Scriptures. We know that the proto-evangelium is in Genesis. We see all throughout Psalms. We see through Isaiah. We see through all the Old Testament of the books. We see that the, the tabernacle and the process of all of that points to Jesus. It points to God. It points to salvation. We see um, when the blood was put on the, 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 the doorpost for the Israelites, when, the, when, 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 when God brought um, uh, death upon the, 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 the Egyptians, that that was a, a foreshadowing of the blood of the Lamb being poured out for the salvation of the life of God's people. And so the gospel is strewn all throughout the Old Testament. And so Paul's writing this here saying, which he promised being God before, in other words, prior to me being here through his prophets in the, whole, in the Holy Scriptures, this would have given the Jews in Rome who, uh, that weren't saved, they would have been given them the understanding that the gospel that Paul was preaching was not something new that was just made up in recent time. Be very careful, my friends, if somebody comes to you and say, God is doing something new, well, Test. I, I, I always have a problem with that because people want to gather recognition for themselves of saying something great and God's doing something new. No, God's been doing the same thing since Adam and Eve, and that's saving people from hell. And out of that becomes a restored person, and the Holy Spirit fills them up, and then they go serve the Lord in practical gifts and ministries. It's not something new. It's been going on forever. So we always have to be careful about that. So Paul's sharing with them, hey, this isn't a new thing. This has been going on, and, 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 and you can test this in the fact that it's in the Old Testament. Remember, the New Testament wasn't written then either. Um, it, it was in process. Verse 3, concerning, he, Paul continues and says, and I love this, he's expounding on this this, 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 this thought and this, this, this uh, teaching concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So now we see that the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. Jesus is a descendant of David. According to the flesh, that word, that statement there speaks of Christ's humanity. Okay, we see in this verse that it speaks of Jesus Christ's deity and his humanity. He is fully God and fully human. So when we see the words, his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that is actually stating that Jesus has the, that, that Jesus is not born son, but actually 
um, is God himself. It, it, it speaks of Christ's deity being gone. But yet, he came in the flesh, not separated from God. And so verse 3 speaks of that, speaks of Christ's deity and his humanity. He is fully God and fully human. It's very, very important to establish who Jesus is and how that, that, so, so that we can put our faith and trust in him. Verse 4, and he continues, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the Holy Spirit confirmed who Jesus Christ was. On the day that he was baptized, um, the Spirit of God fell upon him, and a voice from heaven stated, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And through the miracles Jesus did, the Holy Spirit confirmed that he was God then too. And Jesus is the one and the only Son of God having equality with God. See, Jesus isn't separate. He is God, but a separate person, but God incarnate. And so this statement, the Son of God, that is a statement that he is identical to God. He is God incarnate. The most amazing action ever in history of the human race, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, proving that he has dominion and power over sin and death. And so we see that at the end, by the resurrection from the dead. Verse four, it encapsulates who Jesus is, the power of God within him, that he is God, how the Holy Spirit actually um, uh, uh confirmed who he was. That's one thing that's beautiful is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they will not contradict the word. They will not contradict each other. They are all in unison. It's an amazing thing. We can trust the Lord. We can trust him. Verse five, we see through him we have received, now listen, you guys, through him being Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the here, where we see the word we, Paul is making a mention of himself, okay? Paul is referring to himself. So through him, we have received grace and apostleship. This is not through Jesus, all of you have an apostleship. Because remember, Paul is clarifying who he is here. Paul is writing out who Jesus is. It starts out, Paul, bondservant, he, he speaks about who he is. He speaks about Jesus. He speaks about um, the Holy Spirit and Jesus' uh, being in the flesh. He speaks about um, the declaration uh, that the Son of God, the and the resurrection of the dead. And what he says in verse 5, through him, we, being himself, have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. You have to remember who he's writing to. So we see here, Paul is referring to himself that he received this position as apostle through Jesus Christ, and notice that it is in the grace of Jesus Christ. It is unearned favor that was given to Paul. And why? Not for a sign, uh, not for Paul and his own gain, but for his obedience to what? To the faith. Do you see the, 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 the order there? Grace was given so that Paul would be obedient in the calling that he had from God on his life. And that calling was for him to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to all nations, bringing all that hear the message of the good news of Jesus Christ to a place of knowing that they are to make a choice 
to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is one thing to share about Jesus. It is another thing to ask you to place your faith and trust in him. Many people deliver a message, but they never give you an opportunity to act on it. And we just sit there and we just hear and we hear and we hear. And, and it's so important, you know, when we share Jesus, when Paul, Paul's whole thing was, hey, here is this, now you need to make a change in your life. Peter did that. If you go and you read, I'm sorry, I'm getting off track. I was going to mention Peter's sermon, but the Holy Spirit fell upon the hearers. They were super convicted. And Peter told them that they murdered their Messiah, basically, in his sermon. I wouldn't necessarily lead with that with people, but that was a very unique situation. 3,000 people came to know the Lord on that, on that day when he preached. So it's one thing to share about Jesus. It's another thing to ask you to take, ask you to place your faith and trust in him. Those that chose Jesus Christ, Paul gave them the title, the called of Jesus Christ. My question is, are you the called of Jesus Christ today? Have you chosen Jesus? Have you chosen Jesus? Or is he just there whenever you need, you know, something good? Because when we choose something, we dedicate ourselves to it. Verse 7 and 8, we see, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So <clears throat> this is a normal greeting that Paul would give. Um, <clears throat> It says here that it's to all the believers in Rome. That's where he says, beloved of God. Um, that's not a blanket statement of like that God loves everybody. It's actually to those that um, are believers. We see beloved of God called to be saints. He's speaking to the believers. Um, and then he blessed, it says, hey, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would always um, give that um, intro or that, um, loving mention uh, that, you know, to, to, to his hearers when he would write. <clears throat> Paul thanks God for the saints that are in Rome, and he thanks them for their faith um, and that it's being spoken of throughout the whole world. So obviously the believers that were in Rome um, were making an impact. People were recognizing um, the transformation of, of, of that the Lord had done in their life. Um, there is evidence, there, there needs to be evidence of transformation in our life. Some people, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but our life remains the same. Well, then after a while, it could be questioned whether you're actually what a Christian means. And Christian means follower of Christ, which means that you're following after him and, and working to make your life be dictated by him or managed by him. And it's easier said than done. It's a process and it takes work. And we are all in that boat. There's none of us who in this room whatsoever who are like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's as easy as pie. Where'd that saying come from? Aren't pies hard to make? I don't get that. I don't understand. So um, 
And then we see in verse 9 and 10, for God is my witness whom I serve. This is very important to understand. Paul's giving clarity and who he is and what he's about and where his authority comes from. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Sorry, not his authority, um, but how greatly he serves the Lord. Um, That without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means, um, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. And so Paul's saying, God sees my efforts. He's saying, I serve God. He's saying, I serve God with my life, all that is in me, not out of duty, but out of my innermost part of my life, my soul, my spirit, all that I have, I serve the Lord in his gospel that is about um, his son, Jesus Christ. You notice that the focus is Jesus Christ. It's not Paul, it's Jesus. It is Jesus and only Jesus and always Jesus. The focus always needs to be Jesus. Gina and I waste our time sometimes, not waste our time. We watch this YouTube channel that debunks a lot of false doctrine and false teachers and stuff like that. And man, there are some wackadoodles that are just, driven by demons, and their churches are full, and it's not about Jesus. And part of me last night, I'm like, how do these people have all these people in their churches? They have all this money and all this stuff, because we're drawn to garbage, man. And like, when it just comes to the gospel, the simple truth that Jesus is the focus, man, it's not the norm. Like what? Wide is the road to destruction, but narrow is the path, right? To righteousness. It's narrow. There's one way, and it's Jesus only. And Paul is saying that everywhere it says, Whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, he is literally saying that everything inside of him only serves the purpose of sharing the good news, which is Jesus Christ. It's really amazing. And, 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 and as a Christian, we should read this and go, okay, Lord, um, yeah, okay, Paul met you. Okay, I've met you. And oh, well, Paul's just, you know, he's like way up there. I'm not that guy. And it's important that when we read these things and we really look at the text here that we don't discount the fact that it's an example We should be living for the Lord with our whole life. My prayer for my kids, Lord, at night, Lord, I pray that my children would love you with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. That they would be about Jesus in their own personal lives. And that's how we need to be as well. We see here that Paul is saying, with that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. This is such, Paul would write this about all of the different churches that he would write the letters to, but man, it's such a pastor's heart. It's such a loving heart that he's always praying for the people that God has put his heart on. And so again, it goes back to the 1311 thing. We, we need to always be praying, Always. Always be lifting up those around you. Paul prays without ceasing for these believers in Rome. And he's requesting to the Lord that somehow I might be able to be there with them in person. This is how we should be praying. 
petitioning God to him to move for his will to unfold, praying for those that don't believe in Jesus, for those that are struggling. Those that believe and are struggling, we need to be praying for them as well. Those that need to hear the gospel, we should be praying for that. We should be praying for the gospel to go forth, for God's word to go out in power into the communities and be shared for those to hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ through the word of God, through preaching, and for them to have an open mind and open heart to receive. That's how we need to be praying. That's God's will for this world. For people, for the, for the gospel to go forth and for people to receive it. That's what he calls us to be as a church. That's what he calls us to be as Christians, to be praying for those things. I encourage you, please be praying for those around you. Pray for your neighbors. Ask for God's word to go forth in your communities where you live. Ask for God to use you at work. Yes, that's scary. Ask for God to use you in your neighborhood. Yes, that's scary. But see what God might do. He's just asking for us to be willing. What an example Paul is making here. It's amazing. We need to be praying for the communities to hear the word of God, for them to receive it, to choose Jesus. It's so easy in this society to, 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 to not choose Jesus, to, not, to, to go to churches and not see Jesus. Um. To go into your own house and not see Jesus. I mean, shoot, that doesn't always happen in my house, you know? We have to be intentional with that. Always willing. God, help, help, Lord. Praying without ceasing. Verse 11 and 12. For, and then Paul says, I long to see you that I may impart. This is really amazing, you guys. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. And we see here such an example, again, of a pastor's heart for his fellow believers. Paul didn't want to just go to Rome just to see these people, right? Isn't that how we, we want to go on a trip? We want to go visit somebody, right? We want to go there. That's not what Paul, his agenda is not that. But he desired for them to be built up spiritually in Jesus Christ. And also notice that there is a mutual encouragement that happens between believers as they follow Jesus together. How encouraging it is when we hear and see the faith of others. When I hear and see God working in other people and we talk about it, first of all, it honors God, it glorifies God, it lifts up Jesus, it proves that the Holy Spirit is active, it proves that His Word is alive and working in our life. That's all great, but then God gives something back to us. It incur we incur it's an encouraging thing. We need that encouragement with each other. I need to hear testimonies from you guys of what God's doing. You know, I'm encouraged by people that I run into and, and we, when, when, when conferences happen and you start talking to people about what God's doing, you, you learn that you're not alone in the world and God's alive and active. And I love how the Lord does that in the fellowship of believers. And so it's amazing. I, I find it very fascinating that Paul's saying, look, I want to come be with you, not to impart only gifts, but I want to hang out with you so I can be mutually encouraged in my faith with you. This is the dude who like, he's like, in a, he wrote majority of the New Testament. It's like, Paul's like such this amazing, you know, 
godly man that's so used by the Lord. And then he's telling this, the believers in Rome, look, man, I, I want to hang out with you. So I'm encouraged too. So that we, by the mutual faith, both you and me, that we're encouraged together. It's really amazing. It shows Paul's humanity, like he needed to be encouraged as well. So don't ever think that, you know, just because your pastor is, you know, you know, up talking all the time, we all need encouragement as human beings. This pulpit doesn't separate me from that. And it doesn't separate you from that. We all need to be encouraged together. It's amazing. Verse 13, we see here, now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you. So now he starts saying, hey, don't, don't be worried. Don't be unaware of this. I plan on coming to you, but I was hindered until now. And that's in brackets. And so that is an added thing through translation, but that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. And so Paul wanted to make sure that the Gentile believers in Rome knew that he desired to be with them and had planned it, but was hindered for some time. And we don't know exactly what the hindrance is or was. Some commentators mention that it's possibly was a demonic thing that Satan had hindered him from going when he wanted to go. Um, and so, uh, the, the, and, and, and it's important, I mean, the devil is always against those that are placing action to their faith to build up the saints. You know, those that are placing action in, in their faith to build up the saints and to preach the gospel to the unsaved, the enemy is always against that, 100%. He hates that. Um, it's been said that if you don't feel opposition or warfare in your life, then maybe you're not really moving forward or doing things for the Lord. You're just stagnant because the enemy doesn't have to worry about you, you know? But the enemy is active and against those that are actually taking action with their faith in their walk with Jesus. The fruit here we read of is a term used when growth takes place in the lives of those that hear the good news of Jesus Christ. When the word of God is shared and those that hear it receive it and act on it, then there is fruit. So that's what he's speaking of here that I might have some fruit among you also. It's not recognition for himself, okay? It's not, oh, look at how great my ministry is or look at the impact that I'm having or look at the great letter I wrote to you guys. It's the fruit that he desires to see the transformation of the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of the word of God in the individuals that are in Rome. And we, it's, it's important that, that that happens in our lives as well. Verse 14, it's really amazing. This can get misconstrued a little bit, but we'll explain this. I'll explain this. It says, he goes on and he says, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. I love this about God's word. It doesn't matter whether what your race is. It doesn't matter your financial stability. Nothing matters except Jesus. And Paul's telling them, when it says I'm a debtor both to Greek and barbarians, both to wise and unwise, what's that mean here? And it says I'm a debtor. Paul didn't owe these people money. He owed every single one of them the gospel. No matter what culture they were from, no matter how educated or unwise they might have been, whether Greek or barbarian, he was in debt to them all to tell them about Jesus Christ. The burden that Paul had was equated to him being in debt to them their life for preaching the gospel to them. So he's saying, I'm a debtor both to these people and that, that their status or social status is irrelevant. 
Verse 15, so as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So Paul, with all of the power God had given to him to go out to Rome and preach the good news of Jesus Christ, not to the believers, but to all the Romans that had not heard the gospel and made Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. And so we see there in verse uh Verse 15, where it says, so as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel. The flow of it, what is in him is the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of God to preach the gospel. We can't do anything for the Lord without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it's just man doing their thing. It's just another event. That's all it is. Another event. Man, don't get me started about Easter. I was telling Gina the other day, I'm like, I'm getting tired of like all these churches using the resurrection of Jesus Christ as an opportunity to promote the Easter bunny and eggs. And both of those are false. In fact, eggs are, 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 are all wrapped around fertility, and that's a whole other demonic thing. And it's like we're using the event of Christ rising from the dead to justify us gathering people just for an event to have fun when it should be the most celebrated day because when Jesus rose from the dead, he set us free from hell and death and proclaimed the truth of what the Old Testament is. And, I, and, I, and I'm all for gathering people for having fun. Like we're going to do Easter in the backyard and we'll do a candy drop and we'll do face painting. And we've had, you know, carnivals out front and stuff like that. But man, if it's not about Jesus and it's not about the gospel, then it's not church and it's not what God designed it for. And people are dying hungry for the truth. And yet they're getting fed water that isn't fulfilling and it's really sad. And we need to be praying. We need to be praying for people's lives to, to find the word. And, and I'm, te- look, you know what? Church isn't where our growth comes from. Growth comes from personally reading the word and getting on our knees alone with God and letting the Holy Spirit wash over us and actually confessing our sins before the Lord and being quiet before him and spending time in the word and letting the word do its work inside of us, not coming and listening to a person speak about the word. Although when a good preacher preaches the word of God appropriately, there's power in that. But but there has to be power in every day of our life. And it comes from the word. And so don't get me wrong, I'm not, you know, bagging on, I, I love the church, I love people, but man, I'm just, I'm hungry to see real transformation in the communities. Amen. And unfortunately, when you do events like that, you have to keep doing them and they have to be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to keep crowds coming. And when the Holy Spirit moves, it doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with God changing people's lives. And that's what we're hungry for. Sorry, I just... Instead of posting on Facebook, I just threw it out here today about it, so... But what's our focus, you know? What's our focus? I mean, let's have fun, but let, let's keep Jesus up front, you know? Like, you know, I want to do concerts in this little place here once a month for youth. And I started engaging some of the artists that are going to be out at Let's Go Youth Rally. And um, Jesus needs to be preached at every one of those. Otherwise, we're just doing an event. And, and you can't call it outreach unless you do that. Um, 
John, John Chelly told me this one time, and he was sharing with me his thoughts about how people would do outreaches, and they would claim it as an outreach, but they would never give the gospel at any of these things. And he says, that's not real outreach. And that convicted me because it was last year during the summer when we were doing our movie nights. And, you know, we had Bible and we had prayer and all this stuff laid out, but never engaged the crowd for a decision for Jesus. And the last movie night, I, with tons of fear inside of me, because I think whenever we step up to do that out of our comfort zone, we get filled with fear, and that's a lie, and our flesh wants us to not open our mouths. And I just read the gospel from a track that I had, and I gave an invitation if anyone wanted to come to know Jesus today after reading that. I did nothing special, just read something off of my phone and asked, and three kids raised their hand. And I thought, wow, Lord, that's the power of the gospel. Like, I did nothing. I just opened my mouth. And I was so afraid before that. I asked Roy, Roy, you need to pray for me right now. I'm, af- I'm afraid. You know? And, and it's amazing. John said it. He wasn't telling me what to change at our movie nights, but the Holy Spirit convicted me. I'm like, how can we be a church doing this outreach, and yet we're not sharing the gospel? Oh, you know, and it's up to the Lord. Those kids that raise their hand, that's between them and the Holy Spirit. That's not my job to, did you really mean it? You know, we only know those things when we're in heaven. If even where God allows us to know those things. So verse 16, 17, we'll close out here. Um, Paul continues, says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of, what a transition. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I wasn't planning that. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. So, man, Paul's saying, hey, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to do this. And, and why? it's the power of God to salvation. That's what the gospel is. The gospel draws people to be set free from hell. That's what salvation is, being set free. Um, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for that. It's just so amazing what Christ gives us. And it's amazing, Paul writes, for everyone who believes, right? Anyone and everyone who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ will be set free. And it started with the Jews, so he's giving notation that that's the ministry started with the Jews first, and then also to the Greeks, the Gentiles, those who don't know the Lord. Um, But Paul, he's not ashamed. And it is the literal power of God bringing people that hear it, the gospel, Um, and that decide to make a choice to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior of their life. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It saves you and I. It saves any and everyone that hears it and then says yes. Now, I'm sorry, who says yes, and I, I want to believe. I want this today. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, and this is a um, quote from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, the just shall live by faith. So I'm going to read a commentation that um, David Guzik put together at the end, and then we'll get done here. Sorry, I went a little over. Um, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is openly shown to the world. And, and, And we throw that word around righteousness, like we don't really what does that really mean? And it's important to understand um, this verse 17. 
Um, for in it, righteousness, the righteousness of God is revealed. Simply, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. This is the revelation of God's righteousness. I'm sorry. This revelation of God's righteousness comes to those with faith, fulfilling Habakkuk 2.4, the just, that is, the justified ones. In other words, the ones that are justified because they believe, they shall live by faith. It is essential to understand exactly what the righteousness of God revealed by the gospel is. It does not speak of the holy righteousness of God that condemns the guilty sinner, but of the God kind, God's kindness, the God kind of righteousness that is given to the sinner who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. Do you see what it's saying here? It imparts the literal righteousness of God to you and I. It accounts it to us. Imagine standing before a judge and him having all authority to throw you out into darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth, and he doesn't see that guilt. He sees God's holy righteousness. The word righteousness, William Barclay explains the meaning of this ancient Greek word, dikaio, which means I justify, and is the root of dikaion, which is righteousness. All verbs in Greek which end in oo always mean to treat or account or reckon a person as something. If God justifies a sinner, it does not mean that he finds reasons to prove that he was right. Far from it. It does not even mean at this point that he makes the sinner a good man. It means that God treats the sinner as if he had not been a sinner at all. The righteousness of God that is imparted to the believer, God sees us as if we have never sinned. We are the ones who live in condemnation. We place that upon themselves because in literal sense for us as human beings, this, makes, this doesn't equate to us because we all know that we're evil and that we do wrong things. We know that about us. But this is where we let God's word take precedence in our thinking and we wear it and we own it and we say, if you said it, God, yes and amen, it is a truth of who I am. That's why our identity in Jesus is so imperative. It was the happiest day in Luther's life when he discovered that God's righteousness, quote unquote, as used in Romans, means God's verdict of righteousness upon all the believers. God's verdict, when weighed in the judgment of God for your sin, his verdict is his own righteousness on you. That's his verdict towards you. Is that great or what? I read this and I'm just like, like today, this week, I'm driving around and I just get this thought. Brian, my righteousness is what I see in you. It's amazing. It's the only place in the world that we can see this and know this and hear this and understand this is through the word of God. The commentator continues and says this about God's righteousness. The declaration is even greater when we understand that this is the literal righteousness of God given to the believer. It is not the righteousness of even the most holy man, nor is it the righteousness of Innocent Adam in Eden. Adam was innocent in Eden before sin. It's not even that. See, Adam didn't have this righteousness. 
He was sinless. He didn't have it. He walked with God, but it nowhere states that, 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 that God's righteousness through the gospel of Jesus Christ was ever given to Adam. So Adam didn't even get what God gives us. Can I get an amen? amen. Heck yes. Man, it's amazing. It's amazing. It is God's righteousness, literally. The righteousness which is unto justification is one characterized by the perfection belonging to all that God is and does. Literally, the perfection that all God is and does is his righteousness, and it is imparted to the believer. It is a God righteousness. That's commentator Murray. This is a a a a a a a conglomerate of multiple commentators that Guzik placed in this. And because I wanted us to grasp the veracity of what verse 17 is speaking to us on top of verse 16, for in the righteousness of God is revealed that we have that as Christians. It's amazing. It's so beautiful. It's so amazing what God gives us. And this faith or this trust in Jesus Christ becomes the basis of life for those who are justified or declared righteous. That's what it means, truly. The just shall live by faith. They are not only saved by faith, but they live by faith. Is your life marked by living by faith? All of us have issues and concerns and thoughts and, and, and troubles. And, 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 and I don't know about you, but I need God to step into my life in all of the areas of my life. I need to have that faith and we need to live by that faith. From faith to faith. The idea behind this is difficult phrase. It's probably by faith from the beginning and to the end. In other words, the NIV translates it, the phrase from faith to faith as by faith from first to last. In other words, not just when you believe in Jesus, but your life needs to be based on your faith in God's promises. In closing, it says, He saith unto from faith to works or from works to faith, but from faith to faith, only by faith. In other words, it's not about works, it's about our faith in the Lord. And perhaps what it conveys is the necessity of issuing a reminder to the believer that justifying faith is only the beginning of the Christian's life. The same attitude must govern him in his continuing experience as a child of God. It's amazing, man. I, I'm so excited about going through the book of Romans. I can't wait to get to chapter six, seven, and eight and just, man, be reading on your own and praying and that we would, that we, our souls and our hearts and our minds would be steeped in the truth of who we are in Jesus as we continue through this book. Let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the patience of the hearers. And God, thank you for your love for us. Just pray that as we go forth in our day, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.